So if you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. We're actually looking at both chapters, but our reading will pick up um, starting in verse 25 and we'll read through chapter 14, verse 12. Um, But you know this story. Uh, The first part of chapter 13 Under God's instructions, Moses sends out spies, probably better scouts, who are going to scout out the promised land. That's not just by way of a military exercise. Part of God's purpose, I think, in scouting out the promised land was so that that these representatives of the tribes would see how good God's provision actually was. But when they come back, where we're going to pick up the reading... They actually don't bring a good report. And then all kinds of of sadness ensues because God's people will ultimately refuse the promised land. And so this passage is not just one of the more familiar stories in the book of Numbers. It's actually a turning point, isn't it? Uh, From this point on, God's people will wander in the wilderness for 40 years. The first generation, by refusing the promised land, will not enter the promised land. They will, in fact, die in the wilderness. And it will be their children, the covenant children of this first generation, who will actually inherit the promised land. This is the turning point of the book of Numbers. But in order to hear the message that God has for us tonight in this place in Holy Scripture, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we come tonight as your people on this your day, here at the end of the day asking to hear once again from your word. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come. Open our eyes of faith that we might see riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Numbers chapter 13 then, picking up the reading of verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land 
to fall by the sword. Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out their land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So one of our favorite family movies, probably our favorite family movie, period, is The Princess Bride. If, if you were to watch this movie at the Lucas household, especially when my daughter Liz was there, you would not only be watching the movie, but you would be hearing Liz reciting the movie with the movie. She literally can recite every line. I, on the other hand, mess up the lines. And so I will periodically say, Liz, here's what I'm thinking the line is. And she would say, no, Dad, here's the right line. And she'll quote the line perfectly. But I do know that early on, if you've seen the movie, you know that when Vincini kidnaps Princess Buttercup and they make their escape, they're being chased by the man in black, this character that we think is the Dread Pirate Roberts, but we actually know is in fact Wesley the hero. And at each point along the way, as, as Vincini and his colleagues are, are trying to make their escape, the man in black is getting closer. And at each point, when he seems as though he's getting closer, Vincini will shout, inconceivable. Finally, on the cliffs of insanity, as they thought they've gotten away, and they cut the rope, but the man in black is still clinging to the rock, Vincini will say, he's still alive? Inconceivable. At which point, Indigo Montoya says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. But it is inconceivable. Inconceivable that God's people would refuse the promised land. Inconceivable in its literal sense. It's, it's beyond conception. It's incalculable. It's, it's mind-blowing. It's, in fact, inconceivable. And not just inconceivable that they would refuse the promised land. It's horrific. Horrific to look at God's good gift. Twice the text, as we read it, tells you this is a land flowing with milk and honey. To look at God's good gift and refuse it. Reject it. And rebel against it. How in the world did God's people get to this place? That they would actually refuse 
the promised land. Well, it all started with a report from the scouts. They had entered the promised land under God's instruction at the southernmost part in the Negev, at Kadesh Barnea. And they would make their way all the way to the northern edge of the promised land at Lebo Hamath. They went, as they went, through the valley of Eshkol. Literally, that means cluster valley, where the clusters of grapes were huge. They bring one of them back, and it's so large that they have to suspend it on, a, on beams, and the men have to carry it on their shoulders. But they also spent time around Hebron, which is where the patriarchs were buried, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their wives. They saw how good the land was. In the report, they admit it's a good land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a good land that the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud had brought them to. But ten of the scouts focused on the challenge. You heard that in chapter 13, verse 28. However, they said, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And beside, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. The Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. And then in verse 32, So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. Now, did you pick up on this irrationality and what they've said? On the one hand, they say, the land devours the people. On the other hand, the people are huge and the cities are large and well fortified. So how can both be true? The land devours the inhabitants, and yet they awfully, the inhabitants look awfully healthy. This is an irrationality that's born of their fears. Their fears have over, overwhelmed their judgment. They're not thinking clearly. But the biggest problem with the report of the ten scouts is they've, they've left God out of the equation. They've simply calculated in the light of their own strength as they go into the promised land. And it was exactly at that point that Caleb and Joshua sought to rebut the bad report. In chapter 14, in verse 7, they say, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Verse 8 is the key. It's, it's a conditional that actually is not an if, but a sense. Literally, since the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us. How did Joshua and Caleb know that the Lord delighted in them? Well, they knew because of everything he had already done in the Exodus to this point. Their redemption from slavery. Their crossing of the Red Sea. The provision of manna and quail every day, over and over. The provision of water from the rock. The guidance through the wilderness. The giving of the law. The divine presence in the tabernacle. It was all proof, wasn't it? 
all proof that God delighted in them, had chosen them, had provided for them, was present with them. And since God had provided and rescued and and delighted in them in this way, surely he would enable them to take the land that he had promised to give to them. But God's people didn't hear Caleb and Joshua, did they? In fact, they wanted to stone them. In fact, they actually rebelled against the Lord. And notice, the rebellion was first expressed against Israel's ordained leaders. In chapter 14, verse 2, And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Did you hear it? They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation attacked them in ways that were horrible and foolish. They, they wished they, they could go back to Egypt, to go back to slavery. They wished they could die in the wilderness. But, but where are they? They're right on the edge of the promised land. They're standing literally on the edge of the land that God had promised. All they had to do was trust the Lord. Trust his promise. Trust his presence. And so their rebellion wasn't simply against Moses and Aaron, was it? No, their rebellion was actually against God himself. God was the one who had brought them here. And in their irrationality, they wanted to turn away from the place that God had brought them by his own mighty hand. You hear the irrationality in the idea that, that God would bring the plagues against Egypt. He would kill the firstborn of human beings as well as animals. But he would deliver his people through the blood of lambs. Allow them to plunder the Egyptians just to kill them here. To kill them on the edge of the promised land. Or... The irrationality of God bringing them through the Red Sea so that they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground while the Red Sea crashed upon their enemies, but only for God to have them be defeated by the Canaanites. Or the irrationality of God providing manna and quail, give the law and the priests, give the sacrifices and the tabernacles, only to have their little ones become prey. Only to have the covenant children be slaughtered. It doesn't make any sense. They are on the edge of the promised land, refusing to go in. Rebelling against God and his word and rejecting all that he had done for them already. How did they get to this point? How did they get to this point in their rebellion? Well, God's diagnosis is in chapter 14, verse 11. What does he say to Moses? How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? What's God's diagnosis? How do they embrace this irrationality of refusing the promised land by rebelling against God? Unbelief. Unbelief. Even though they were God's people, even though they had seen the signs, even though they had experienced God's direction, even though they had known God's presence, they did not believe 
in me. Friends, this is really, really important. Every sin that you and I commit has its root in unbelief. And it's, this, it's, it's just there that you find the sinfulness of sin. The sinfulness of sin is that we choose to believe sin rather than believe God. The old Puritans used to talk about the sinfulness of sin. For example, the 17th century Puritan Ralph Venning wrote a book called The Sinfulness of Sin. In it, he declared that when we disbelieve God and choose to sin, we, his words, ungod God. And it is God murder or God killing. When we choose to sin, we ungod God. And our sin is God murder, God killing. Really? Our, our sin? Our lack of conformity or transgression of God's law? It ungods God? It murders God? It kills God? Yes. That's what God himself is saying here. How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? Friends, we ungod God and we god our sin. We disbelieve God and we believe our sin. We disobey God and we obey our sin. We don't do what God demands, but we do what our sin demands. And in doing this, we rebel against the Lord. We refuse to enter his good provision, and instead we choose our own way, which is the way of sin. Jeremiah talks about this with God's people hundreds of years after this scene. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, Jeremiah says on God's behalf, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Did you hear it? In sinning against God, we forsake God, who is the founding of, fountain of living and true water. And instead, we make our own pots, trying to capture our own waters, and, and those pots are broken. They can never hold water. And what is such unbelief? Such ungodding of God, what, is, what does it deserve? Well, it deserves divine judgment. That's what God threatens in verse 12. He says, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Our sin, our unbelief, it deserves divine judgment. But even in this proclamation here in Numbers 14, verse 12, even in this declaration of wrath and curse, there's actually an invitation that God is offering. He's, he's inviting mediation. And I say he's inviting mediation because Moses has heard this before. Way back in Exodus chapter 32, after the golden calf incident, remember? God said the same exact thing. The response was exactly the same. And in responding just that way, Moses had interceded for Israel in Exodus 32 and 33. And so when God says this here in Numbers 14, many years later, Moses knows that this is actually an invitation for intercession, an invitation for mediation. And he does so along two particular lines. Notice, first he appeals to God's glory. In chapter 14, verse 13, he says, then the Egyptians will hear of it. 
For you brought this people in, in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face. And your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he had killed them in the wilderness. Do you see what Moses is doing here? It's as though as Moses was saying, Lord, what will your reputation be among your enemies? Will they mock you? Will they trumpet your incompetence, your inability to bring your people into the promised land as you promised? Lord, give an eye to your glory. Hallow your name among the nations. He appeals to God's glory. But Moses also intercedes. He also mediates between Israel and God by appealing to God's character. Notice what he goes on to say in chapter 14, verse 17. And now please let the power of the Lord be as great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. What does Moses do? Do you recognize it? He's reminding God of God's own name. The name that God had declared in his power and glory in Exodus 34 when he put Moses in the cleft of the rock and passed by his, with his glory and declared his name before him, which was really an expression of God's own character. Moses takes those very words, that very name, and says, All right, God, if this is who you are, and you are, then be who you are. Be a God of steadfast love. Be a God of compassion. Be a God who is slow to anger. Be a God who's abounding in, com in compassion. Forgive iniquity. Forgive transgression. Yes, God, you maintain justice. Yes, you deal with the unrepentant. But you are a God both of justice, yes, but also of mercy. And so please, Lord, pardon and forgive and show the greatness of your steadfast love. This, this mediation, this intercession where Moses, the mediator, appeals to God's glory and God's character, it is beautiful and it is excellent and it is glorious but it is especially so because it points forward to the mediation and intercession of Jesus the great priest on your behalf because friends even when you rebel against God even when you God your sin and reject your God still Jesus is interceding for you He's pleading his wounds. He's appealing to God's own love for you. Oh, forgive him, oh, he cries. Forgive him, oh, he cries. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. He appeals to God's own glory and his own glory. He appeals to God's own character, which is, of course, his own character. And he willingly intercedes on your behalf as the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And God's response to such prayers of mediation, my friends, whether it's Moses' prayers, but more importantly, Jesus' prayers on your behalf, is mercy. God's response is mercy. Do you see what he says? Look at chapter 14, verse 20. 
And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. Don't run too fast past the first three words of what God said. I have pardoned. God didn't destroy them as they deserved. He didn't bring his wrath and curse upon them. Rather, he pardoned their unbelieving rebellion. He pardoned their despising of him. He pardoned their ungodding of God. Now, God's pardon doesn't mean there's not consequences for their unbelief. As we just heard, the Exodus generation will not gain the promised land. They will, in fact, die in the wilderness, just as they said. But he will continue to provide for them. Manna and quail will come every single day for 40 years. And he'll continue to lead them through the wilderness. The pillar of fire by night will be there every night. The pillar of cloud by day will be there every day. And as he leads them through the wilderness, he will remember his covenant faithfulness. And the children will, in fact, enter into the promised land. There is mercy here. Mercy in response to the mediation of the intercessor. But friends, how much more, how much greater is God's mercy to you and me in Jesus Christ? We sang it tonight. What love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. All the times that you've wandered, all the times you've rebelled, all the times you've refused God's kindness, all the times you've disobeyed, and yet God has pardoned you because he heard your mediator he heard your intercessor, Jesus Christ. And so friends, tonight, don't refuse God's grace. Don't refuse to enter into the promised land of his mercy. If you're wrestling with a secret sin, or if you've been living out of unbelief, or if you're refusing God's promised grace, turn away from your sin and run to Jesus. Ask Jesus to plead on your behalf. Ask for his intercession. Plead the merits of his blood. Remind God of his glory and his character. Hear the good news. Because Jesus himself says to you, if you come to him, all those who come to me, I will never, ever cast away. Yes, your sins are many. His mercy is more. Even in those times when we refuse the goodness of God displayed in his promises, and we refuse the promised land, God's mercy is great. His mercy is more. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we do bless you. For we know our minds reflect back and we know 
how great our sin actually is and what our sins actually deserve. And yet you continue to show us kindness and mercy over and over again. Jesus, you ever live to make intercession for us. And because you do, we are saved to the uttermost by our great high priest who exactly meets our need. And so tonight we praise you. And we confess that you are our only hope in life and in death. You are our only hope. It's not in our good works. It's not in our deeds. Certainly, it's not in our failure. No, our only hope, Jesus, is you. You are the object of our affection, and you are the object of our faith. Our certainty is not resting upon the greatness of our faith, but rather on the greatness of the object of our faith. It's you, Jesus, that we are trusting in and resting in this night. And so, Lord, please hear our praise yet one more time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.